Happy Friday. Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance here. Drancer, of course, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, 650-650, the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drancer, it is December 9th, 2022, Friday. So, of course, of course, the perfect opportunity to discuss the 2011 Stanley Cup Final. (laughs) What else would we be talking about on this day today other than the 2011 Stanley Cup final? Well, we'll, we'll it never ends. No, it's we'll, never it's never it, it is still going strong 11 and a half years later. Yeah, game 29 <laughs> due to be played in a couple months. Um no, it's never going to be over for the people who lived it. It was not your usual sporting event, right? There was a different feeling to it. I think it had different stakes. I think the lessons drawn from it had echoes for five, six years. What well, more than that? I yeah. think we're still we're still living with the echoes of it in in Vancouver. In Vancouver, we are. Yeah. You know what? I agree with you. I actually do think that that was effectively an organizational trauma that hundred percent an organi- cannot be divorced. An organizational from- and fan trauma that yeah. is still being processed today. Yeah, I think you're right, especially because this organization can't make a single correct decision since. Right, like if you draw a decision tree. From the 2011 Stanley Cup Final Game 7 loss to today, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an organization in professional sports, any professional sports league, that has failed more from what they had from that point forward. Like, I think the Canucks have been the worst decision-making team for 14 years in any professional sports league in North America since that time. So I think it's hard to understand that without assuming, in fact, that there's some level of um, you know, a lack of closure stemming from it. Anyway, it's true for the players too, right? Like the players aren't over it really. Well, that that's the interesting thing about this. And look, for those who are maybe just tuning in, haven't heard on social media or earlier today on the radio, we're talking about some comments made by Zidane Ochara uh, that we will on a, on the Games with Names podcast that we'll play momentarily here. But that's the interesting thing is it's not just or even really primarily at this point a fan base to fan base thing. It's the principles involved. The players themselves, who obviously still, whether they are on the winning or losing side, have a lot of passion, a lot of feelings, a lot of emotion invested in that series. Yeah, and whenever it crops up, it's like both media and both cities start opining on it and like talking yep. about it again. Like we're all ready like we're to going relitigate to. it. Fans are all willing to relitigate it. Like you're right. There's, there's something universal about that moment in time that that we all still find delicious. Like we all still find it compelling. Um, there's not a lot of hockey series like it. Frankly. There's not a lot of championship series like no. it. You know, like I'm trying to think of a Super Bowl that has anything comparable to that well, decade plus after effect that we're feeling well, here. And I think your analogies would be things like Buffalo's never going to get over the skate in the crease, but it's like that's like a moment or a bad call. Yeah, that's not like it's not like Dallas is in on that either. You know, like this is like this thing between. Two port cities on opposite sides of the continent, mm-hmm. and both have a boundless appetite to get into it and relitigate it and talk about it again and snipe at each other again, right? Mm-hmm. The the Bruins, from the moment that series began through to now, 
right, for like 15 years have never tired of manufacturing grievance stemming from that series, right? We're the underdog. Nathan Horton, uh, we're pouring, you know, Bruins ice on Rogers. Like, I mean, uh, pumping the tires, the whole thing. Like, it's always been one sense after the other of manufactured grievance um, for 15 years. And, you know, I, I, I like this is just par for the course within that milieu, right? Like, Zdeno Char is giving you a view into the mindset uh, under which the Boston Bruins players – we're going to play the clip, right? So oh, yeah, I'm we gonna, all. We will. But this is, a, this is a glimpse into the mind view of the – or the worldview of the Boston Bruins players during that series, right? They were – completely bought in to this idea that they needed to be bought into, frankly, of like the Canucks as like uniquely petulant, the bad guys mm-hmm. the you, you know, and, and I do think one thing I do think is I think the Bruins were going to probably go gently into that sweet night before the Aaron Rome hit on Nathan Horton. I've had conversations with Bruins alum who were on that team who sort of, you know, have suggested to me that, that I mean, They've suggested to me that that was at least a possibility and that there was a sharp contrast with the Chicago Blackhawks who, having seen how the Bruins rallied against the Vancouver Canucks, being aware of the poke the bear thing, right, would spend their playoffs, their Stanley Cup final series against the Bruins, what was that, four years later, three years later? Two years later, I think. Two years. Yeah. So, like... You know, you're taking an opening draw, and Patrick Sharp's like, "Hey, man, how, what what are your summer plans? Like, <laughs> great, great play by you on there. You know, like they literally spent the entire series buttering them up, and it was like an annoying thing until until Patrick Kane scored the game winner and said showtime in front of the Bruins bench. Right? They waited. The Blackhawks players, having won before, waited, played nice, and then Patrick Kane went and stomped on their hearts. And hey. You hate to see you hate to see uh you hate to see a guy like Patrick Kane do that, but it couldn't happen to a nicer guy <laughs> group of guys in the Boston <laughs> than the Boston Bruins, Bruins uh, yeah. which, which actually isn't even true because like how do you think about Patrice Bergeron now? Oh, like, like are you happy? Incredibly, like I'm. I'd rather the Sedin twins have a Stanley Cup, but like the world no, is a better Bergeron, place if, for the fact if that he's Bergeron's wearing any champ. other sweater. He's like even in Vancouver. I mean, everywhere else he's a beloved, respected As he hockey be. elder, and yeah. I think even to a degree in Vancouver he is, despite that history. It's sorry. it's hard to hold it against him too much. Sorry, but I digress. The Bruins needed to manufacture this sense of grievance to be all in on beating the Canucks up in the alley, right? On on you know sort of masquerading mm-hmm. as the good guys. They were enabled by you know, uh, a national hockey media commentariat that was far more comfortable with the rough and tumble way that the Bruins played hockey than the far more progressive way than the Vancouver Canucks played hockey, uh, which has proved proven far more influential over the last 15 years and with even the Boston Bruins adopting it. It's proved, proven far more influential everywhere except in Vancouver in the immediate aftermath of the series. That's true. <laughs> Everyone, yeah, you're right. Everyone else, everyone else drew the right lesson from the series except the except Van- the Vancouver Canucks. Oh. Yeah, it's painful when you put it that way. And, you know, so I thought this was an interesting worldview into that. I don't think it's surprising when you understand how the Bruins approach that series. Let's hear from Zdeno Char again. These are comments made, of course, by the uh, longtime Bruins defenseman, captain of that team on the Game Games with Names podcast. Here's Zdeno Char. We saw players from Vancouver coming on the ice in the garden and they were actually practicing how they would be lifting the cup and handing off the cup to each other. And we found out wow. about these things and we were like, like we are not gonna allow this happen. You know, it just it just feels 
So that's Daniel Chara alleging that <laughs> the Bruins witnessed or somebody witnessed because the, the wording changes a little bit there, right? He says, we saw, and then he says, we heard about Canucks players on the ice in Boston practicing how they would lift the Stanley Cup and pass it around should they go on to win the Stanley Cup. Did they have a prop? Which really... They had, like, did they have, like, a keg? <laughs> it really does struggle like it tests the limits of your credulity you know what i mean like why would hockey players practice that why would they need to no it's it's just a ridiculous notion on its face it's something you especially if you're a hockey player like you've seen of and dreamed of this moment literally every year like let me ask you because you're not even a high level player no offense (laughs) how dare you (laughs) have you missed have you missed watching the cup be awarded at any point in the last 20 years. Oh, I mean, maybe, but it, like, it's it's appointment viewing. I never have. Yeah. I, like, I, I miss hockey games. I'll miss games during the Stanley Cup final. I'll miss game sevens. You know, like, life happens. I have not missed. Every game that the Cup could be awarded, I watch. I make sure to watch in full. I clear my schedule. Like, that week in June when you think it might be, like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. always watch it be awarded. You know what it looks like. Well, even think think about the superstition around the the conference trophies, right? Oh, can't touch them. Can't touch them because then you know what I mean. Like these are these are incredibly superstitious, zeroed in guys. No. They're not going to mimic it. If you were to tell me that in conversation, Henrik at one point maybe said to Daniel, like, "Hey, if we win, I'm not going to pass it to you first. It's going to Lou." Yeah, I could see. I could buy that. I could see a joke happening once, or like you know, I, who like Burroughs and Kessler making a joke or something. But sure. the idea of like actual. Practice? Practice? Yeah. Like, we're having a dress rehearsal. We're doing the rehearsal dinner before the wedding the, the, on the ice at the garden. Alain Vigneault's whistle blows. He's like, hey, guys, line up and try it again. You're not taking this seriously. we got to be on point for the cup ceremony. No, come on. Anyway, Zero chance. Anyway, um, do we have the clip ready about what he says about the families, though? No, I don't. Okay, so he also has a comment about players' families. Do you have that in front of you by any chance? No. Okay. Anyway, whatever. Here's here's the thing. I'm not going to defend Zidane Chara. This is like well, here okay. Zany. Hold on. Before you get into this, the one thing I'll say cuz you made the point about them doing absolutely everything they can to manufacture this sensation of the being the underdogs, of being under attack, of like all the odds stacked against them. That's a pretty common thing, right? Like Bill totally. Belichick and the Patriots are masters of it. Oh, everyone counted us out. No. No you didn't. No I didn't. You're Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Do you remember? Nobody counted you out. Do you remember Team America uh, or th- Team USA at the 2010 Olympics? They tried to do the same thing. Yeah. And like every answer was like, "We just got to bring our hard hats and our lunch pails." Like that was Burke and Ron Wilson, but it's like it's like and and your Timberlands and your, so- like, it was just like they were just like listing like things that farmers own. It was like just ludicrous so that's so annoying that in and of itself isn't that remarkable although you could argue about the specific circumstances really stand out in that series the remarkable thing is i don't think that sense of grievance and sense of like victimization usually lasts 12 years after you won no they won well that's the thing they won and then the shots kept coming right like they kept finding you know like uh Sean Thornton getting mad at Dale Weiss. Like, they yeah. just kept kept finding things. Remember they had the Zoom call during the pandemic? Yeah. And they were, like, still chirping. Like, oh, they were whining because they were injured, but we I were know. hurt, too. And then they lose in the cup final of the Blues. It's and like, they're guys, you won! But also, they're literally crying on the ice. It's like, <laughs> no no offense. Like, you guys have also been through the loss of a Stanley Cup final twice. Like The, the closest thing I can think is uh, compared to 
and I not that these guys are in this category, but uh, is Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame acceptance speech. Oh, where he's like, I think that no, it's, where, where he's like calling out his high school coaches. You know, you know what? I disagree with you because that was like literally a glimpse into someone who has a hole in their soul. <laughs> truly, I don't think Sedano Chara does. Like, I no, think, probably not. I actually think what Sedano Chara is like showing us, and I actually think it's a fascinating glimpse into how the Bruins players felt. Like, there was no story so wild that they wouldn't like throw it on the whiteboard. Yeah, you know, they were just like looking for whatever. And, like, deeply internalize it. Oh, you yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think this like, happens. Like, to the point where it becomes part of your identity. Well, that's the thing. But We I also, won this cup over these bad guys. I don't think I don't think this happened. But I also no, 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 don't it, I don't think Zidane Char is making it up, per se, No, either. he's not. Like, he's I think not. he believes in his bones that this happened. Well, or that, or that he's like, we heard about this. Yes. Right? Now, there were other things that did happen, right? Like, the Canucks organization... Not connected to hockey operations, but the Canucks organization did begin to have some conversations about broadcast rights for the parade. That did occur with telecom people. That did get reported, and that got out. And Bruins players for sure heard about and knew about that and didn't like it one bit. That is true. That might be what he's thinking about, right? But it's like, this is how the collection of things like Luongo said it would have been an easy save for him. The Canucks are trying to sell the parade rights. Mm-hmm. The Canucks brought their families. And this is also true. The Canucks brought to Boston for game six a giant entourage. That was a mistake. People in the organization to this day think that was a mistake. But they wanted tons of families. So he says, he talks about the Canucks asking the league, how many family members could we have on the ice if we want? They heard about that. That I believe to be, you know, I don't know that that one's true. I don't have perfect confirmation, but I do know that families came for game six and that in retrospect, everyone felt that it was, or at least upper management felt that it was a mistake. So that would be consistent. Like, that's not a story that strains credulity, right? Like, that's a story that sounds right. Yeah. So, like, again, the fact is, is that there were like eight or nine of these stories swirling around. The Bruins didn't miss a single opportunity to, to put one on the whiteboard, but also... It clearly, like, they were putting outrageous stuff on the whiteboard, too. You know what I mean? Like, Alex Burroughs kicked Patrice's cat. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Like, they were clearly making some stuff up, too. Or passing along bad rumor as if it was true. Hey, it fueled the fire. They won. Good for them. Like, good for them. You know? Yeah. I, I don't know what else to sort of say about it. It's just amazing the extent to which, you know, the manufactured grievance that the Bruins pulled off enabled by a hockey commentariat that just wasn't prepared to cover that series objectively at that moment in time. Um, it's just amazing to the extent to which they've sort of internalized that and made that part of their personality. Uh, this uh, this text comes in unsigned. What a load of blank. Why would the Bruins need motivation when they had the front office and NHL officials on their side in that series? And- a now. A now. They recused themselves after having done the um, Eastern Conference Final, which... <laughs> That, that game seven against the Lightning is still amazing. Like, when you remember that the Lightning were churning along at a 30% power play clip in the playoffs, and then go look at the, go look at the box score of that game and how many penalties were called. Um, and, then, and then it's only after that that the dad of the winning team's player... Recuses, <laughs> recuses himself. himself. Yeah. I mean, that is 
And any hey, still working, still working for the league. <laughs> really, really serious league we got here. Another text comes in. Hey boys, don't you think that uh, Big Z's comments were just some good coaching? A Boston coach or executive must have made it up. Yeah, somebody passed along a story or something. Like, yeah, there's no, obviously a broken game of telephone here somewhere that happened. Well, again, like one thing that the Bruins did well was like, for example, the Canucks had it in their minds that it was just another game day. Right? Game six, game seven. It was just another game day. Mm -hmm. We have our routine. We stick to our routine. So game seven in Vancouver, players stay at the pan, which the Canucks always did back in the day, before like really key playoff games, right? You you move to the pan before game seven. You move to, to the pan before an elimination game. The Canucks show up and do a morning skate. Totally normal. Like everything's totally normal. And... In retrospect, you talk to some of the people that were who were there, and they're like, you could cut the tension with the knife. With a knife, like the whole day was a knot in your stomach, you know, like on the precipice of disaster. The Boston Bruins skated at UBC the day before, canceled morning skate outright, and held twenty minutes of media availability with two players at their hotel in their hotel lobby that day. And that was it. They didn't leave. Right. So was it good coaching by uh, Boston Bruins management and coach? Yeah. It was. And also that was, right? Like, yep. there were things, I think, that the Boston Bruins were a little bit better prepared for than the Vancouver Canucks were. And I think the pressure on the Canucks ultimately got to them. I think the, you know, idea that, like, we're not going to hide from the media because the media is, you know, li- like, I think the media got in their head. Like, wh- why did the why do you treat it like a normal game and just, like, because you want to show the media that they're mm-hmm. not in your heads. They're not influencing things. But I think in retrospect, the pressure got to them. The... Um, constant churn of controversy got to them. The, all of these little things got to them, and uh, and the B- Boston Bruins, by in contrast, were fueled by all of those little things. And by the way, they needed them because they frankly weren't as good a team that year. Even as the injuries piled up on the Canucks' defense, right? Even as the Canucks couldn't score a lick, right? The Bruins needed seven games for a reason. Mm-hmm. Even as things stacked up against Vancouver just is what it was like Vancouver had such a high baseline that year so um you know that's sort of the story of that series and it's still deeply painful for Canucks fans it's still deeply exciting for Boston Bruins fans and players and you know I think I think that's the way that Zdeno Ochara's comments should be taken it's just this like window into how the Bruins motivated themselves and found ways to stack every little intangible advantage that they could in winning that series. A couple other notes on this. You can get your thoughts in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. So, as you might have heard on both 32 Thoughts and the Jeff Merrick show, Kevin Bieksa has strongly denied, according to Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman, his, his colleague at Hockey Night in Canada, uh, or his colleagues at Hockey Night in Canada, he's pretty heated about it. So you can expect a response, a rebuttal of some form from Bieksa on Hockey Night tomorrow. That's going to be must-watch. And I, of course, would also remind you that a- another member of the 2011 Canucks, of course, Yannick Hansen, is set to make his I hope, weekly I, regular I hope appearance. just, like confirms it <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that was me no, yeah like oh oh my bad my bad guys <laughs> i shouldn't have done that <laughs> it's me yannick i'm the problem it's me and of course uh yannick always <laughs> must listen but uh, i will be especially excited to get his thoughts on this uh in this whole incident yannick doesn't have social media so i do love the idea that like it's 
I, I'm oh. sure somebody's texted him about it now or I something. Hope, you know what I, I mean? I hope he gets to react blind to it. That though, would be right? fantastic. Like, just like what? Huh? <laughs> I mean, that'd be fa- that'd be delicious. That hey. would be very good. The other thing I wanted to say, okay, and and I and I want to hear people's opinion on this is, if you are not over, if you're not over it, what's it going to take? Like, when is it going to end? When when can we? Put to bed officially. Oh, the Canucks need to win. Is that it? Is that the only correct? The only thing. The only other one I could come up with. There is only be... one bomb, and it is a Vancouver Canucks Stanley Cup victory. And and by the way, this is not the only hurt. I see b- bomb B A L M. I was like, what are you talking about? But now I understand. Yeah, there's only one B A L M. Yes, bomb. What do you think? Bomb. B O M B. I was like, what is what is he talking about? That's out of context. Yes, I agree. Now <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Feels like a you problem. <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> I'm not blaming you. There's only one ointment. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. Yes. Except that's disgusting. Is there any less appealing word in the English language than ointment? I mean, I'm sure I could think of something. I won't do it. Won't do it right now. Yeah. Okay. You, Probably not great radio. You don't like the <laughs> word spatula? Let, let's just. I don't mind spatula. What's wrong with spatula? Yeah, it's a weird word. Anyway, the only bomb will be winning a Stanley Cup. Which, by the way, is why. That's our focus. Mm. That's why the big picture matters to me, right? Like, that's why I'm not excited about, you know, four, four, four wins in six games with them coming in overtime against the worst teams in the league. Like, the cop. The cop. That's what this market wants. That's what these fans want. That's what everybody in Vancouver, generations of fans, nursing their hurt and speaking in in hushed tones on bar stools around this province, you know what what do they say? I hope I don't die before the Canucks win the Stanley Cup. That's what they say. You know, like that's that's who you want the cup for. You want the cup so that the Canucks players, the next generation of Canucks players, or maybe this generation, get to get to be the ones gloating twelve years later on a mm. podcast. That there's another city uh, talk show hosts sort of going off about this like it matters. Whining, years whining about it. One accomplishment that no one can take away from this organization. And that's what's so frustrating about, you know, when the question like, will this organization rebuild? And it's like, well, they can't because, you know, when you get so close like they did in 2011, the hurt from that lingers and they can't see past that. Like, that's a you problem. If that's If that's why Canucks ownership won't take a long view, like you're hurting your own cause. Like if... You can't let go and take advantage of the cycles of success and failure that are inevitable in a hard-capped league like the NHL that rewards failure, right? Um, Then you're in the way. Then you're in the way. And you might be the main thing in the way. Like, if that's the real reason, if it's hurt from 2011 that is preventing the Canucks from rebuilding as opposed to any financial reasons or, you know, overall organizational business plans and what they're based off of, like, if that's the real reason then there is one crucial blockage that will prevent this club from getting back to the mountaintop or even close, which is a process we're sort of seeing play out. And and that's really tough to watch. And the thing is, as cathartic as it would be, nobody is ever going to like admit that the Canucks should have won. 
in 2011. You know what I mean? Nobody is ever going to come out and say, you know what? We really goofed it on that one. We we shouldn't have had the head of officiating be the the father of one of the guys on the team. We, we really screwed up that Aaron Rome suspension. That's not going to happen. And if you're waiting for that, you're going to be waiting forever. So you have to find a way. And I don't just mean you as in one individual. I mean, everyone collectively here in Vancouver has to find a way to process it and move on from it and just start acting like a normal team. Right, Not acting with the shadow of 2011 constantly lurking in the back of your mind, constantly kind of making you second-guess yourself, constantly trying to do things in response to that moment. You have to find—it's over. It's done. There's there's moments where it's fun to talk about it still. There's moments where it's hurtful to talk about it still, obviously. But at a certain point, you have to get on and find a way to move on yourself, not with not relying on external validation about it. I hear you. I feel you. But, like, also we're going to do this for 48 more hours first, right? This is, like, one of those, like, that my cleanse starts on Monday. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying we can never talk about it again. But it has to be, at a certain point, it has to become history rather than connected to the chain of events that we're currently experiencing. Totally. Well, I mean, there's like, no we one. Could, like, the 94 Stanley Cup. I, I'm trying to think back to the I equivalent. don't even think there's a single person in the organization still from 2011 other than ownership. Like think about it. They cleaned out ho- yeah. the rest of hockey operations. They cleaned out the rest Smeal? of the like. I think I think it's the equipment staffers, Smeal, and I guess the twins, right? The twins mm-hmm. and Higgins and, mm-hmm. and Samuelson. That's but that's it. Like so they so they brought in a couple of the ex players, but I mean very very few. Uh, there's almost no institutional knowledge now. Now the Bruins still have a lot of players left over from that series, but I mean this is a whole new. Oh, well, even that three, right? Bergeron, Marshawn, Krejci. I think that's it. Yeah, but like also Cam Neely. Also oh, I Don see. Sweeney, I see. The, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm okay, just saying okay. like they're inst- yeah. they're institutionally they're the same group. Sure. You know, I mean, even their PR people are the same. They're quite, like it's it's a totally similar group. Whereas in Vancouver, there's been a ton of change. Oh yeah. Anyway, just just yeah, you're right. At some point, you can't let the ghosts of the past hold you back. Then you become the Maple Leafs and the Edmonton Oilers, and no one. Wants to go full because there's police. a way we talk about, for example, 1994, right? And you can sit down and you can talk. Oh man, Nathan Lafayette hit the post, and it's remembering it, but it's not re-traumatizing yourself, the, right? The 94 team, it was always gravy. That's the difference. The 94 team wasn't expected to win. The 94 team was an anything can happen team. That ultimately anything didn't happen because it doesn't. Right? The 2011 team had a real shot. Mm-hmm. In fact, should have won. That's a that's the difference. So the '94 team seen as like they left it all out on the field. You couldn't have asked for more. If they'd won, it would have been a miracle. Whereas the 2011 team, it felt like it took 20 miracles for them to not win. Yeah. Uh, by the way, as I do, I was you know digging into the the box scores from the 2011 Stanley Cup Final this morning, and the thing that does not get talked about enough: Dan Hamus only played eight minutes in that series. As a factor to what happened in the rest of that series, that does not get talked about enough. No, it doesn't. But he was and, and it's why Anyways. and it's why the completely unprecedented Aaron Rome suspension, right? Which, by the way, remains unprecedented. Like a guy with no prior suspension history getting four playoff games for like a late hit is still uh, without precedent <laughs> in the annals of NHL. A late hit that wasn't split. even going to be called until they realized he was injured. Correct. Play play went on. They're like, oh yeah, that was it was a hit. It was I mean, a hit in I mean, like a, final. a true travesty of sports administration. Just like at the time, at the time, I remember my take was, if this is the new standard that the league has to take because of what we know about head injuries now, fine, but it's without precedent. 
10, 15 years later, there's no precedent. It's like, this is a disaster. There's nothing like this ever else in the history of the NHL. Like, the only long suspensions you see in the playoffs is, like, when Rafi Torres hits Marion Hosa, and it's like, everyone's like, yeah. Oh, oh, oh my enough. goodness. You know, everything else is one game, two games. Anyway. Um, we're we're going to turn the page here. The, the Ham Hughes injury is compounded. Like, the Rome yeah. suspension matters because you lose Ham Hughes, and then you have to play Keith Ballard. And the story and goes, then you, and then you just run out of defensemen you trust. Well, the story goes that after they play a Ballard BX a pair in Game Four, and I don't know if you remember Marchand picking his pocket behind the net and scoring like the three-one goal that really put Game Four out of reach in Boston. Uh, the story goes that Alain Vigneault walked off the ice after the game and said he's not playing again in the series. Yep. There you go. Uh, we will turn the page now, but you can keep getting your thoughts in. JFID texts in, Dodd is my hockey shrink right now. <laughs> that is certainly the vibe here, uh, but we will look ahead to the weekend, get you an update from Canucks practice as well. More Canucks talk coming up here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. Happy Friday. Sportsnet 650 here. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Jesse and Kamloops text in. Drance is doing a good job getting me fired up on my lunch break. Yeah. I mean, I almost want to apologize for... for- for Why? getting into it. For dwelling on the past. Because I know it is tough. Sorry, this is Canucks talk. That's what we do. <laughs> this is Canucks talk. We dwell on the past. And more than that, like, here, here's the thing. People people often say, well, I'm not going to get into what people say. I'm just going to say what I say. Canucks fandom. You're not in it for the... F- for the glory. Let's put it that way. You're, there's, if, there's not a lot. Of, you know the people who grow up and are like, I'm going to be a Yankees fan, even though they live in like Ohio? Yeah. There's not a lot of people doing that with the Canucks. No. <laughs> not it, a lot. And it, and if you have, my goodness, you need some work. You need some work on your picking teams that will reward you with glory. The Vancouver, you don't, you don't become a Canucks fan for the glory. You become a Canucks fan. And you stay a Canucks fan, and you really indulge in in becoming a hardcore Canucks fan because misery loves company, right? Because the one thing that's great about this franchise consistently is the level of, like, passion and knowledge about the game and the importance placed on it by fans in this market, right? Canucks fans are extremely bright, extremely sharp. They have a really sophisticated understanding of, you know, the salary cap. Like, do you think, do you know how much salary cap talk happens in other markets? Very little. Very, very little. Like, do you know how much, you know, uh, third pair, like, the idea that this market gets, like, on a guy like Riley Stillman, which, you know, I don't even think is fair, but other markets that doesn't happen, you know, like, other markets, people just, like, embrace the physical players and, like, they're, they're not paying close enough attention to be like, man, that third pair. Like, that's a very Vancouver thing. Why, why did he go off the glass and out there instead of making an outlet pass? We, we can do hours on line changes or, 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 like, line combos. Hours in this market. That level of passion is unique, right? It's unique, and it's super fun. So it's like you always have 
an ability to nurse the wounds that are inevitable supporting this franchise with a bunch of other fans who also live and die with the team's results, also live and die with the team's process, also know how fatalistic the experience is. And as such, you know, it's it's a collective wound, um, you know, nursed nursed as a community. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, what's better than that? You know, like, Stanley Cups would be nice. Shared celebration is better than that. Mm-hmm. But in the wake of it, at least this team connects you to your community, your city, other sports fans in this market in a really powerful way. And that's true whether the times are good or whether the Between times are Between generations bad. as well, which I think is a huge part huge of it. Huge part of it. Uh, and Rager texts in, I think this is, there's an element of this as well. He says, I think a majority of us are staying hardcore Canucks fans because when we do finally win it, it'll all be worth it. We might be in our 90s but that, by then. But it'll be worth it, and I do think that's an element, right? Where the the we'll pain, take it. the pain that you go through on the road makes the victory, the ultimate victory, all the sweeter. Right? Someone, someone's gonna be mad. I'm gonna be like, by the time we're in our 90s, Pedersen and Hughes are gonna be out of their statistical primes, <laughs> and people are gonna be like, Dredge, stop it. Uh, Alan Calgary texts in. I started cheering for the Canucks in 2011 when I was in elementary school, living in Calgary. I'm a year away from graduating university, and yes, I agree, I made a mistake. <laughs> that's from Alan Calgary. But once you make the mistake, you can't back You're out. You're stuck. You know? Uh, and I wanted to read this one as well. Like, I, I similarly, like, the real moment that made me a huge Canucks fan was 94, right? Like, oh, when, I was, when yeah. I was seven and the Canucks are on this run to the Stanley Cup final. Like, before that, I'd been to a few games. I, like, play, owned Blades of Steel Yeah. growing up. I, like, thought the Minnesota team was cool because they wore eggplant color i was like i like eggplant color yeah That's like great. i i was like oh wayne gretzky's the, on the kings wayne gretzky's awesome like you know the big stars you know what i mean but you're like, like yeah but and like and like i knew pavel Bure was cool but that 94 run really cemented it for me um you know i don't think i'd be doing what i was doing if there wasn't like Bure in his prime when i was a child you 100%. know like and 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 you know i don't think it's coincidence right for example that um 15 years after 2011 You've got this wash of star forwards coming out of Vancouver who are going to make a huge imprint on on the NHL entry draft, right? Like Kent Johnson grew up watching the Sedin Twins. Connor Bedard grew up watching the Sedin Twins. And Tyler Mott. <laughs> well, no, but for him, Ryan Kessler. That's a joke, yeah. For him, Ryan Kessler. Like, you know, it's not a coincidence that the best generation, you know, people talk about the Gretzky effect on the talent level of American players, but, like, there's been a Sedin effect I think you can say very clearly, or a 2011 effect on the development of talent on Vancouver's West Coast, and that's part of the legacy of the team too. My favorite example of that is the uh, the Patrick Waugh Quebec goaltending boom. Oh, amazing! <laughs> it's just absolutely incredible. Well, well, yeah, and and I mean, I remember it was the Canucks were playing the Nashville Predators on the day that they had they were like unveiling the banners. You know, like when they changed the banners up to reflect the individual colors of the players that wore them during the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. season. So, like, Marcus Naslin's in the house, Smeal, Linden, they're, they're, like, getting ready to do their press conference, and it's morning skate, and the Nashville Predators are around. And that Nashville Predators team is, like, all Swedes and all BC boys, right? It's like Ryan Johansson, Kyle Turris was still on the team then. You've got Colton Sissons. Right. You've got, you know, Ekholm, all the Swedes that they have, Philip Forsberg, on and on. And... Like seeing all these NHL players get legitimately starstruck meeting Marcus Nasland was like a wild moment for me. You know, like it didn't occur to me because in some ways I was like too old 
Like the West Coast Express to be era, truly like head over heels. This is my favorite. Like, you I know, like I felt that way about Burray. Yeah, yeah, but these NHL pros felt that way about Naslin growing up. Right? He was like the oh wow, like this guy. Look at what he can do. You know. So it was this like moment where I was like, a, I'm old, and b, <laughs> you know, it's amazing the impact that the West Coast Express had on certainly Swedes and players like current NHL players on the uh, on Canada's West Coast. And, you know, now you're going to see this generation filter in where the Twins, Kessler, like the way that the Canucks played in 2011 was, you know, deeply meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, minor Matt in Abbotsford texts in, personally, I'd be more willing to let go of the past cup losses if the Canucks have would have even slightly considered a rebuild or retool after the 2011 loss. Uh, how are fans supposed to legitimately move on if the organization continuously patronizes us with false hope. That's from Minor Matt. And I think it's a good point. And again, I made this point in the first segment, but just the fact that it all still feels so connected that you can draw a straight line. You, you know, we talk about eras, right? And that was the Sedina Luongo era. And obviously now we're in a new era, but it does still feel like it just kind of has blended together in, into one, one passage of time that you can draw a through line through. And, you know, you think about the like the Benning hire is a direct response to losing the Stanley Cup final to Boston in 2011, and the then meat the, and er, potatoes. the yeah the meat and potatoes the his first draft pick Jake Vertanen right direct response to losing that Stanley Cup final, and there's been a lot of twists and turns since then. One, one would argue the Cassian trade, the but way that the club went out and looked for a power forward, the Shane Doan pursuit, right? Yep. I mean the the David Booth trade, right? I mean there's like a real like what did the Canucks want? What did the Canucks seem to be? going after with extraordinarily targeted focus in the wake of that, a power forward, mm-hmm. like bring a power forward. And we're, again, those, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the moves we just mentioned are a decade or, or eight years or whatever old, but we're still living with the results of them. We're still living with the fruits of them. We're obviously still living with the aftermath of the Jim Benning era here in Vancouver. So I think to minor Matt's point, it all feels so connected. It's hard to truly, move on from it. Uh, sorry, I want to I want to bring up one point, but you need to drag the puck for me for okay. like two minutes so I can pull up the resource <laughs> okay. because there's right. a story that I was like looking over. I've been thinking about doing something tracing 10 years of failure for this organization. And there was um, there was a thing that I came across that just like felt so. Yeah, OK, I got it now. There we go. I was going to say you're doing a good job of writing the puck yourself. Thank you. There's this thing. There's this court filing between a European doctor and the Vancouver Canucks. And um, so this guy, his name is Bruce DeMichelis. Okay. Okay. And in 2013, he took the Canucks to court. And specifically, he took Francesco Aquilini to court. This is from a global news article written by, or sorry, by from the Canadian press, March 9th, 2013. So um, I'm just going to read a little bit of this because I feel like this is such a good window into everything that's come after. So his name is Bruno DiMichelis, developed a sports science center credited with reducing player injuries while working for the Italian soccer club AC Milan, according to a statement of claim filed with BC Supreme Court. DiMichelis said that in 2009, he joined Chelsea Football Club as a first assistant coach and set up the Mind Room, which led the soccer team to its 2019-10 Premier League and Football Association Challenge Cup victories. Uh, Canucks co-owner Francesco Aquilini visited DiMichelis in 2010 in London to learn about the club's facility in the mind room, the documents say. During the visit, Aquilini asked the plaintiff to leave his employment with Chelsea FC in order to move to Vancouver and work for the club in the Canucks. DiMichelis declined the offer, but the documents indicate 
uh, the documents indicate, but add that Aquilini returned a second time and again in 2011 after the Canucks lost the Stanley Cup final to try to persuade him to work for the team. This is court documents. Mm -hmm. During the third visit, Aquilini told the plaintiff that he was very concerned about the psychological and physical condition of Canucks players and the negative impact it had on their performance in the Stanley Cup final. Aquilini told the plaintiff that he was the person the Canucks needed to improve the players' physical and psychological condition and ultimately their performance. So... The Canucks set up a mind room under a different doctor, mm-hmm. okay, uh, under the auspices of Gillis. They go learn about some of the other teams using similar technology. Yeah. After 2011, though, Francesco comes back to try and persuade this doctor to come visit because he's worried about the f- physical and psychological frailty of the best Canucks team in the history of the franchise and how that contributed to the club's loss in the Stanley Cup final. Finally ends up hiring him. I don't think uh, I don't think it was a hire um, that lasted very long, and obviously, uh, it ended up in court. Ends, ends in acrimony with, sure. with a, with a settlement of claim, giving us a unique window into the way that the organization reacted, overreacted, panicked in the wake of that Stanley Cup final loss. Worried about the physical and psychological condition of that Canucks team, of that group. Where's the worry about this group? <laughs> this group can't play defense like like what where's that same level of concern now rager texan how are you how are you all in on this group having thought that that group was psychologically frail like what are we talking about isn't is that not baffling yeah it's a little confusing it's well no actually it's not it's actually not confusing the comparison to this group is confusing you're right that you're not worried about providing the same resources and you don't see it in this group but i can understand in the direct aftermath of the 2011 final, not thinking that they lost because they were frail, but worried about the effect the loss would have on them. Sure. That I can understand. That I can understand, So that too. part isn't baffling to me. No, But no, I, I understand, I understand the comparison too. you're drawing to, well, why aren't you see, Why aren't you worried about some apparent, I don't know, mental weakness, whatever you want to call it, with this group. That I understand. But I can it's understand that in group, that moment. That group wasn't mentally weak. Sure. But, you know, I don't know. I just... All right. It just feels like... It feels like once the standards drop, right? Like... When you see a great team that can't get it done, it's like they're frail. When you see a bad team that can occasionally get it done, you think, like, if we could just get there, anything can happen. You know, like, I think that's, like, a really natural bias, mm-hmm. right? Like um, like a great team that underperforms looks worse than a bad team overperforming. Even though, of course, the true talent level of one is far higher than the other. And I think that's sort of probably part of the bias that's being played into uh final word on this goes to rager who says i think that doctor needs to treat the rest of us still which the fact that we're well <laughs> we're at 1247 I, here 1248 about to take over i don't know that he was um i don't know that he was a particularly effective <laughs> member of the organization to be totally honest with you all right let's turn the page let's talk about the current group of canucks and uh first they were at practice at ubc today no lineup changes to note based on what they showed at practice today but let's hear from canucks head coach bruce boudreau Times along the way, you've been asked if your team had turned the corner, and you said, well, "Let's get back to 500." And then we kind of talk about it. You're there now. To you, what's the significance of getting back to to 500? Well, you're. I, I just think you don't like losing more than you're winning, and so I mean, at least you know 500 is very mediocre. Let's let's. Uh, I think there's 25 teams that are 500 or better, but I mean it's a starting point. So I mean, when you get below the 
below the mark like we did for the first seven games to finally catch up uh, there. It's a sign you're going in the right direction. And so now, but now you have to make, now you have to make hay and get two games, five games, and then probably in the end of the day, you'd need to be 12 or 13 games in that five games to the playoffs. So that's the goal. You know, you've harped on your team defense obviously all year, but is it almost a defensive contest? Is it a mental, is it a decision by the players, I'm going to be better defensively before I go on offense? Is that come down well, to that sometimes too. I don't know what uh, what they think. I mean, I just know as a team, um, if we want to sustain the winning, that you can't allow five and six goals every game. And that's, and believe me, there's not a coach alive that likes that, likes that. So, I mean, we have to work a lot on defense and neutral zone. And the, with the, how we play without the puck is probably the, our biggest our biggest uh, something that we can improve on, so we work on that. There was some noise in the market the other night after your win in San Jose. Chase, JT didn't get a shift in overtime. Was that just a reflection of a guy that wasn't going the other night? Or is there JT, for the 80-some games that I've been here, has been the best player, no doubt. But every now and again, some players just, you know, have an off and. We'll do whatever we have to do to win at that particular moment. doesn't mean JT's not going to play 25 minutes tomorrow night. I mean, uh, uh, I have the utmost confidence in him. But, you know, he, uh, he, it wasn't one of his stellar, stellar games, I guess. There's not many game breakers like Kirill Kaprizov in the league. How do you defend against him tomorrow night? Maybe you've put seven guys on the ice all the time. But, I mean, he's... Uh, there's no doubt. He's, he's one of the best, best, youngest, brightest stars in the league. People come to see him, and he seems to score wherever he goes. So our, uh, we'll have to figure out a way because we know how dynamic he is, and you know I know how dynamic he is for sure. It was not long ago that people talked about this being a 3-2 league. You guys are sort of the poster boys for the fact that it's it's not anymore. Do you have any just general theories on why offense is up across the board this year? Well, I, I can tell you one theory, and... Uh, when I first got into the league, when we won the the power play, like we had the best power play team in the league, we were at 26%, and the next team was at 20%. Now there's 25 teams at 20%. So the scoring on the power play is so up. I think the other reason I was telling somebody was the game has changed a lot in that <clears throat> defense are more almost offensive rovers. I mean, the attack is by five men and four men, where in days gone by, it was three men and maybe a D would join the rush. But, uh, so when you're stuck, and in the offensive zone, it's five guys moving. It's just not, like when you think of the days where there was just two men that stay on the blue line and three forwards that are deep, it's 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 uh, morphed into a five-man attack system. So I think that's made it an awful lot harder to, to defend, and uh, consequently, I think goals are up because of it. And what about power plays, then? Any theories on why power plays? You guys are 28%. As you said, like, you're sixth in the league with a 28% power play. The skill of every player that's grown up, like, I mean, uh, they start so young, and, and the, you're getting players from all over the world now uh, that play this game. So, I mean, the skill is getting better every year. You see younger players at 18 and 19 joining the league and 
and and and scoring, and it's uh, and it's going to continue to get more skill as it goes on. I mean, it's uh, I watch out here, and I mean, other than just trying to stay out of the way, I mean, it's uh, some of the puck skills on some of these players is amazing. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau speaking after the team practice at UBC. Apologies for some of the uh, rink noises in the background there. That's how it goes at UBC. Of course, his team take it on the wild at Rogers Arena tomorrow. We'll talk a little bit more about that matchup when Dmitry Filipovich joins us towards the end of the show. I, I did think it was interesting there from, from Boudreau. You know, asked about his team getting back to NHL 500 and him basically saying, Matt, not that impressive. Not that impressive. There's a lot of teams. A lot of teams at 500 or better in the NHL. You need to do a lot more than that. And it, it, to be fair, in characteristic Boudreaux fashion, saying it's, you know, it's important. It's an important milestone after the start we had, but not that impressive in the big scheme of things. Yeah. No kidding. 100% correct. <laughs> Did he say 25 teams have a 500 or better? I think he said 20. It's not 25. Well, it's pretty close. It's 23, 22, something like that. Yeah, something like that, probably. But it's not 25. No, no, no. It's definitely not 25 because I think 25th in the NHL by point percentage is what? Buffalo? Buffalo or Philly? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's good. It's good that the Canucks are 500, but it's not great. I mean, it's better than being below it. <laughs> I mean, that's sure. Like, do you remember? I always used to say, like, one thing bad fan bases do is they wait for the moment that their team is like, top of the standings like 10 games into the season 23 teams above at or above 500 i believe so i think he said 25 yeah i'm pretty sure he did say 25 uh, because rounding up he's right 20 would actually be too low so 23 and the canucks so the canucks are 23rd in the nhl by point percentage yep right so so their form over the last two weeks has moved them past philadelphia and buffalo right if you're talking about teams like the avs the predators like stuff like that you know, you're not having the right conversation. They're not there yet. They still have to keep going to get there. And they have to go and do it against a Minnesota Wild team, granted, playing the second leg of a back-to-back. That'll help them. That'll help them a fair bit. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot to do here. There's a lot of work to do here. Bruce Boudreaux capturing that clearly in how he captions 500 being mediocre. Dead on. Uh, we're going to go to break, but uh, Minor Matt texts in, can you guys get to the Gavin McKenna updates after Canucks therapy hour is over? <laughs> I do like the idea of Gavin McKenna becoming the Canucks hour or Canucks talk uh, uh, podcast or well, mascot. Re- real, I mean, that's the realistic timeline for when the Canucks might actually rebuild. So it's not completely outrageous. Uh, on the other side, on the other side. What, you're not going to pick up that one? Uh, well, no, I, I got to go to break. Uh, on the <laughs> other side. Former Canucks general manager Dave Nonis will join the show again. Looking forward to that conversation. Lots to get into with Nonis. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, final hour of the show for the week. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.com. 
Nat, former Canucks general manager Dave Nonis, is going to join us on the show momentarily here. 650-650, of course, as always, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, no shortage of hot-button general manager-related questions to get into with Dave Nonis this week, Drancer. When you think about the Brock Besser situation, you know, the ongoing discussion about how valuable certain Canucks assets uh, are going to be as we approach the trade deadline, or at least as we, you know, it's still a little bit of ways, but... uh, uh, but you know our show. We're more prepared yeah. to think about it now than anyone else. So. Uh, I won't. I won't spoil it for anybody. But true, absolute scenes, as they say at the World Cup at the moment as well, which distracted me a little bit. But now joining us here on Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650, he is former Canucks general manager, longtime NHL executive Dave Nonis. Dave, thanks very much for doing this again. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What are you guys doing? We're doing very well. Uh, just reliving the uh, 2011 Stanley Cup final, thanks to Zdeno Chara's comments uh, recently. But we're, we're turning the page and focusing on the present and future of the Canucks now, Dave. And uh, I wanted to start by asking you about the Brock Besser situation, which really unfolded last weekend. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I think, for a lot of our listeners and, and Canucks fans was the detail that Brock Besser's agent has permission to go and seek out a trade for his client. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that collaborative process looks like when a general manager agrees to let an agent go and try to find a trade on his own. What's the reasoning behind that, and how does that play out in practice? You know, it it doesn't work that often. There there are times when it uh, can be helpful, particularly if you have an agent that's got a a large client base uh, in that situation and that agent might have one or two players that are disgruntled and are looking for new homes. You can try to have some discussions with the general managers and see if there's a way of putting a deal together. You know, that on occasion has worked. The higher profile of the player, the more money that's involved, the more difficult that is. At the end of the day, you know, the agent can, can try to you know put some pressure on uh, the team to move his client. He can look for possible uh, landing spots. There's so much that goes into it nowadays, in particular you know cap considerations, as well as you know trying to get uh, a pretty good return on a, on a player. It, it makes it difficult. So can it can it help and can it work? Yes, um, but at the end of the day, uh, more often than not, particularly with a high high profile or high highly paid uh, player. It's going to be the GMs that work that out. Dave, by the time an agent gets involved, um, do, you, does, do you read into that? Like if an agent calls and has permission to um, negotiate a, a trade or, or find a trade on behalf of their client who's on another team, um, does that tip you off as a rival general manager that the trade value is perhaps a little bit distressed? Um, it doesn't happen that often. So yeah, I think that that's a pretty good way of putting it. You know, if, if agents involved, um, you know, there's uh, there's a reason for it. And, and mm. very few players that are on a tear request <laughs> a move. You right. know, it's usually someone who's struggling or is the relationship is broken with the, with the coach or management. Um, it's not often a guy that's really humming along and says, you know what, I'd like to, I'd like to change the scenery. Um, so it, it it, it, it doesn't make it a lot easier um, when the agents are always involved, but it, it does. Yeah. You can say tip off that there's a significant problem. And, you know, um, I'm sure that Jim Rutherford, Patrick Olveen, they've talked to virtually every manager prior to that, even getting out. 
you know, they wouldn't have just sat there and said, listen, let's let the agent do all the work. You know, these are pretty experienced guys that I, I think have, have touched base, uh, as most GMs would, with everyone else in the league just to get a pulse of what's going on out there, who might be available, and, and mentioning players uh, from their own team that uh, they would look to move. And I'm sure that, that Brock Bresser's name has been discussed with multiple teams. You mentioned the phrase, a change of scenery there, Dave, and that's something we've heard come up from in reports about Brock Besser, right? That there might be a recognition on both sides from the player and the team that, uh, you know, a fresh start of change of scenery is what's best. How much stock do you and did you as a general manager put into the idea of, you know, acquiring a player and we'll give him a change of scenery and that will breathe new life into his performance on the ice? Um, you know, I think that it's it's a real it's a real thing. I think that a change of scenery can help players um, you know, there's an excitement that comes with, you know, starting with a new franchise. Uh, if you have been struggling, it takes a little bit of a you know, weight off your shoulders. So I think that a change of scenery is good for a lot of players. Um, it becomes difficult again, when you've got a player that's got multiple years left. And so it's harder to move a player that's struggling. That's got, a, you know, multiple years on his contract, especially if it's a high number. Um, it, so it, it, that change of scenery might be welcome, but it's sometimes it's it's hard to accommodate. Um, but yeah, it, there's there comes times when when players have for whatever reason, like I said, it could be it could be a, a coaching situation, it could be a personal situation that they've benefited by moving to another franchise. Dave, one of the other conversations that that are ongoing in this market, and you know, this market likes to talk hockey. Um, is uh, is regarding Luke Shen's future in Vancouver. Um, some discussion on this program, anyway, uh, from people around the league, national commentators, who are suggesting to us that Luke Shen might have more value as an asset than, than we'd perhaps imagined. Obviously, we know it's a good contract. Obviously, we know the Stanley Cup winning bona fides. But my question to you is, in a league where we're seeing increasingly crooked scorelines, 6-5 games, no one can hold any leads anymore, uh, does that enhance, in your view, or potentially enhance, the trade value of a shutdown type like a Luke Shen? I think it, it does. You know, the, the scoring rate, I think, is going to come down as the season moves along. I think things will tighten up as you get closer to the deadline and as, as you get closer to the playoffs. I you know, I, I think these games are very exciting and, and people love to watch them, uh, but I, I don't see them continuing for 82 games for each team. With that said, I think, you you know, you will see players like Luke, and I had Luke. I, uh, I know what he brings to the table. I, I love him as a as a teammate and a, an individual. Um, and as you mentioned, his contract and his past, uh, past winning ways will make him very uh, valuable if they decide to move him. Um, but yeah, shut down, shut down defensemen are guys who can play in their own end that are hard to play against. I, uh, I think particularly with, with a under a million dollar cap hit, um, will be sought after. Dave, you mentioned, you know, you had Luke Shannon, you know, what he brings as a player and a, a person and a, a teammate. And we've got to see that play out. We've heard the rave reviews from everyone in the Canucks organization on that front as well. How difficult does that make it, even when he is a pending UFA, to to move on from a player like that when you know what they bring off the ice in addition to their on ice performance? Well, first of all, I think we you know we're making an assumption that they're going to be out of the playoffs because uh, I think if they're you know if they're near the playoffs or within striking distance, I don't see 
I don't see Vancouver moving Luke Shen. They're you know they're having a a difficult time keeping the puck out of their net to begin with. I think I don't think there's a team that's in the playoffs position right now that has more goals against. So you know their success has been by scoring a lot, and if they're going to have um, you know future success, they're going to have to tighten up. So if uh, if they continue to you know piece wins together and stay within striking distance. I don't think you move on from them. Uh, if, if they fall out and it looks like they're going to miss, um, I would expect that they will look at all the players that are UFA or that don't have a long-term future and, and see what's out there for them. Dave, for a non-contending team like the Canucks, how big a priority does, whether whether they're close or not, just making sure that they don't bleed value in players leaving an unrestricted free agency, like how much would you prioritize that if you're in a position like Vancouver where you're sort of, you know, not out of it, you're definitely not a Bedard contender, but you're probably not a Stanley Cup contender either. Yeah, it really depends on the player and the situation. I mean, if they have a, they have a bunch of different, I'd say valued uh, players that are going to be UFAs. Mm. You know, we've talked about Luke. You no, know, Luke, will, will, I think, would have some value, but does he have the same value as <laughs> as Bo Horvat? Nope. <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that you have to be realistic. And, and listen, the Canucks are going to know how things are going with Bo Horvat in terms of the contract negotiations. I, I don't know where that stands. But I'd be shocked if they if they haven't had significant discussions and know uh, what it would take to get them signed. And at the end of the day, if you, if you think that this player is going to leave for nothing, um, when when his trade value uh, is going to be as high as it's probably ever been, uh, if, especially if he continues to play it you know, the way he's played and score at the pace he's been scoring, uh, it's very difficult to have that player you know, walk at the end of the year. So. You have to take stock of where your team is, you know, which direction you're going, how close are you. Uh, and then at the end of the day, if you can get a really good return for any of these players, if you are, you know, if you are out of it, I think that they'll look to move them. Former Canucks GM Dave Nonis, our guest here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. And, you know, you mentioned the incredible goal scoring rate that Bo Horvat is is putting up this year. And, I'm not sure if you were ever in this position as a general manager where you had a high-profile pending UFA who was also having, uh, you know, one of their best statistical seasons and among the league leaders in goals. And, you know, on the one hand, of course, you're thrilled that your player is performing like that, but I imagine there must be somewhere in the back of your mind also thinking, well, the price keeps going up. Take us uh, into the mind of an executive when they're in this situation where the guy who you still would like to sign to a contract extension is also putting up these kinds of numbers. Yeah, you know what? It's it's really bad karma to cheer against your own players. So <laughs> I, I think that you know you're 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 happy when when he's scoring. It's good for the team. It's good for the fans. Is it impacting his you know his contract? Of course it is. But at the end of the day, you know he's one of their best players. He's obviously their leader. Um, you want him to do what you're paying him to do. They're, you know they're paying him a, a fair dollar right now. They're they're asking a lot of him as their leader to. To, to bring the team forward. So if he's playing well, you, you can't cheer against that. You have to recognize what it's doing, but you're, you're not, you're not rooting against, uh, you know, one of your most important players. Do you have to be cognizant Dave in, in situations where um, you've got pending UFAs guys, you know, in Vancouver, you've got a guy like Niels Hoaglander with pending RFA on the top line. You've got Andre Kuzmenko, 
pumping in goals, right? Like on pace for 30 plus and, and 70 plus points. He's a pending UFA. Do you have to be cognizant in those situations of uh, effectively buttering a, a player up for yourself or are these good problems to have? You just want to win. You just want your players to perform well. Yeah, you want to win. I mean, that's, I haven't met a, a manager, a coach, a player that's, yeah. that's not interested in winning games. And, um, at the end of the day, those players, you pay them to perform because make has been a very good signing for them. Obviously he's, he's, uh, he's done a, a, a great job fitting into the league and fitting into that team. Is it going to be expensive to sign him? It is. I mean, if he continues, if he continues at this rate, it's going to be expensive to sign him, but you got him here for a reason. And, you know, now you want him to continue to develop because ultimately if the team's going to be successful long-term and challenge for, you know, for a, uh, not just a playoff position, but challenge for a, a cup at some point, you're going to need all these guys to continue to perform. Yes, you want to control the cost the best you possibly can, um, but I haven't seen a team in the last you know, 10 years that's gone on to the, to the conference finals or the finals without being a cap team, and that's the environment that we're in today. Just on Andre Kuzmenko, I mean, how difficult is it to – really accurately settle on a value for a player on what their next deal will be worth when they have such a short track record in the NHL. It's hard. And again, that's, it's going to be very difficult for them to do that. Um, you know, he's going to have some, some negotiating leverage, uh, particularly if he continues, like I said, to play like he's been playing, uh, you know, he's going to, he's putting up pretty good numbers. And if he gets to those 60, 70, 80 points, um, you're gonna you're gonna have to pay him. I wouldn't say a premium as a as a player that's done it for five or six years, but uh, I still think you're gonna have to pay him a fair dollar to keep him in the fold. Dave, you know I'm I'm curious about this because you know one way one way that some teams have begun to operate right is to take risks on what a player might be well before they become that player. And we've seen that sort of accelerate. You, you think about the long-term deals that guys like Cairo and Rob Thomas and Josh Norris and um, uh, Tim Stutzlow signed, but also even, you know, sort of uh, on the lower end or maybe the more medium range, a, a guy like uh, Matias Samuelson in, in Buffalo have signed. How different is the way that teams are sort of assessing risk over the course of the past couple of years? Like how, how different is that? from you know where teams have t- traditionally been comfortable sort of uh stacking their chips yeah it's changed a lot yeah. um you know when i when i first started uh, in the early 90s you know once a player came out of his his first contract and contract or once he first uh you know was looking at a uh a, a, the next contract that was looking with uh, arbitration rights, you used to work it out in your calculation to try to determine what that contract would be worth. So, for example, if a player is, you know, had one year before he had arb rights, you would say, like, listen, the last three years he scored 50 points, let's give him the 60-point year. And then the year after that he's got arb rights, let's see what his qualifying offer would have been, give him his arbitration number, blend them together, and, and they come up with a number. That that way of doing business is completely gone. Um, you're now, like you said, you're hedging your bet that the player is going to, he's going to continue to improve. It's going to be um, in your best interest to maybe overpay him early for back end savings. 
uh, and hope that the cap goes up. And that's really been the, the way that teams have, have assessed uh, signing their, their players. And it's, it's great when it works out. Uh, you know, Cage Thompson's going to be a pretty good player for Buffalo <laughs> for a long time, it looks like. Mm. Uh, but when he first signed that deal, some people did sh- shake their head and say, listen, he's had one really good year. Is that a smart move? Well, you know, Buffalo knew the player better than anyone else. It looks like it's a, a very good signing. Uh, and it'll save them money long-term. There are instances where that hasn't happened, where players have signed long-term deals uh, and they have not performed. And those are the players that you're stuck with. They're hard to move, if not impossible. And then you end up with uh, possible buyout situations. And you mm-hmm. know what happens with long-term cap hits. Uh, it, it can really damage a team going forward. Is there anything cultural like, like obviously a manager is mostly um, focused on putting the team together and, and the coaches are sort of the metronome day to day. But culturally, how big a shift has it been in the sport for the youngest players on the team to all of a sudden be the highest paid guys by, by and large? Uh, and how conscious do you have to be about supporting them? It's so that you, they still learn, the, learn to win effectively in this league despite those dynamics. Yeah, you know what, that's a really good question. And I think that has changed a lot about how teams are put together. Um, and like you said, the culture within the room, there are situations where some of the younger players, like you said, without having really accomplished a whole lot, become the highest paid players. And uh, in its own, that that can be difficult to swallow. But more uh, more importantly, I, I think that teams that have, have adjusted well with that uh, – are are making the players, despite their their salary, um, play and act with a certain amount of respect. I think that has become the more important mm. part within the within the room within the players. You know, some older players, veteran players that maybe have are obviously still well compensated, but are blown right by by some of the younger players. I, I think that as long as the 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 younger player shows the appropriate amount of respect to the rest of the group. I think the rest of the players understand that, uh, that management and ownership is, is trying to put together the best team they can long-term and hedging your bets with some of these long contracts is one way to do it. A couple more minutes here with uh, former Canucks general manager Dave Nonis on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Obviously, there's been some public friction between Jim Rutherford and, and Bruce Boudreau so far this year here in Vancouver. And I think one of the things that's been a result of that is there's been some speculation about whether the Canucks front office is having a certain amount of input on lineup decisions and specifically, you know, on players that the front office has acquired uh, during the course of this season. If they're, if they're making certain requests of the coach to, to play them in certain roles in your experience, Dave, what does a, a healthy organization, what does that conversation between the front office and the coach about lineup decisions about usage decisions look like? Well, I, I always I spoke to to the head coach regularly. I spoke with Elaine Vino every day. Um, I spoke to Randy Carlyle every day, and you know I would always tell them what I thought. Uh, you know who I thought played well, what combinations that I thought worked. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I, I would never tell them who to dress, what lineup, you know, to put together line combinations. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't tell any of my coaches any of that now some some managers might do that but my my experience is you have to give the coach uh, enough rope to hang himself if you're telling him who to play and uh, and 
which combinations he should put together. It's very difficult to blame him at the end of the day and, and make a coaching change if mm-hmm. you've got a hand in some of the failures. So for me, making um, my point and telling him what I thought was always appropriate. Um, but, but for me, making him play certain people um, or sit people out, uh, that was something I, I was never prepared to do. Dave, we've had a lot of coaches on hot seats, very hot seats over the course of the past few years. Certainly in our show's existence, it feels like we've been talking about it a lot. And one thing I've always done is given coaches credit when they keep trying things, right? Like the thing that bothers me most um, about a coach in a tough situation where you know they're coaching for your job, for their job, is when they just kind of like play the guys they have, you know, and stop sort of trying to problem solve and just like, what can I do? This is the hand I was dealt. And one thing that Travis and Bruce have both done is, is continue to solve problems. Did you ever look at it that way when you were evaluating your coaches? hundred percent. I think you hit the nail on the head. If you just go back to the well over and over again, expecting different results, it's, it's rarely going to happen. And I think you can you know, over uh, change things as well. Mm. You, you have to give uh, the players some, some time once you've made a change to see if that change is going to have an effect. But, you know, you look around the league, some of the teams that have struggled uh, have had success by making changes. Gerard Gallant has, you know, changed his lineup the last couple of games, and it's worked tremendous for him. The team's played, you know, a a much uh, improved brand of hockey. They won a couple in a row, and and a lot of credit, I think, is because of the changes. So I think you're right. I I believe that, um, you know, looking for solutions is part of, of the coach's job. Dave, we really appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks for doing this. Have a great weekend, and we'll chat again next week. Sounds good. Take care, you guys. Thanks, Dave. That is former Canucks general manager, and of course, a longtime NHL executive uh, with different organizations, Dave Nonis, who's going to be a regular with us uh, on the show. I know you guys had a great chat. I think I was off. Was it last week, two weeks ago? Who can say? But uh, I'm happy to uh, get the chance to chat with him. Really interesting insight, right? And we'll we'll get into more history and picket stories uh, as we develop yes. uh, as we develop that rapport. But for now, having an experienced executive to check in. Well, more than anything, I like to throw my odd theories at him <laughs> and be like, "Hey, is that how you think about it too? Like, you hit the nail on the head." To my, at least he's not just playing the lineup he's got. That's been like a constant mm-hmm. thing we've talked about. One of my biggest complaints is when a coach stops working. Well, and I love that. I hate it. I love that one of the things he had to say, right, was if you're the if you're in there making lineup decisions, you can't turn around and blame the guy when it goes wrong, right? Like you have to give them the space to succeed, but also to fail in a certain way. For what it's worth, I do think that Bruce Boudreau is making his own lineup decisions. Like I do think that. Oh, yeah. otherwise, and- otherwise you'd see more consistency with some of the young players and on and on. But I think you can make arguments to a coach for why you'd like to see X, Y, Z. Yeah, and well, and that's what Nona said, right? Is yeah. He talked to his coaches every day. He gave them input, but he also stepped back and let, and let them make the, uh, yeah. the decisions, right? Which well, is, and that's I mean, how it's going to work. You know, you know you'd, like to, you'd like to think, too, like, that a coach is getting a variety of data. And, you know, like, there are, there are things that you think don't make sense, but then actually make a ton of sense once you see the, what, what it looks like. Um, data wise and sometimes your eyes miss things like you, they just do especially when you're involved in the emotional outcome right the results based th- part of the game like Niels Hoaglander with Bo Horvat and JT Miller doesn't make sense in your mind's eye until you see it and you're like oh man there's something there right but it doesn't make like I would never have I would never have drawn that line up until 
Boudreaux put it together, and I was like, oh, wait, this makes it a works. ton of sense. Dmitry Filipovich coming up on the other side. First, I am very excited to tell you that Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank for Food Bank Friday. It's coming up, a virtual fundraiser on December 16th. That's one week from today, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It raises important funds for accessible, healthy, and sustainable food for individuals and families. You can check out the events tab at sportsnet.ca slash 650 to donate. We're very, very excited once again this year to have two anonymous donors who are going to be matching donations dollar for dollar up to the first $45,000. That means your impact will be at least $4 for every single dollar you donate uh, when you couple that with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank buying power. If you want to add your own match or challenge, you can email events at foodbank.bc.ca. You can also always donate cash to the Greater Vancouver Food Greater Vancouver Food Bank as well. Again, it is the events tab at sportsnet.ca slash 650. Food Bank Friday coming up next week on December 16th. Dmitry Filipovich on the other side. It's Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. Final segment of the week. Weekend is coming up. Let's go. I'm fired up. I'm very fired up for that. Uh, it's Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strantz here. Of course, Strantz are also covering the team at The Athletic. And we are now joined, as always, at this time on Friday by our pal. He's the host of the Hockey PDO cast uh, here on Sportsnet 650 and the Sportsnet Radio Network, Dmitry Filipovich. Dmitry, what's going on, man? Yeah, we're, we're having some troubles with the third bike here, but we'll get it figured out. Drance, you talk for a little bit. No, I'll, 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 I'll fill air. Okay, here. okay. I'm good, Jamie. I'm good. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a blast to come in the studio with you guys on Fridays and uh, and talk shop. Even when your mic doesn't work. Yes, right? even or oh, especially. Nope. No, we'll, 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 we'll figure it out. Tom Don't and I will get cozy. We'll yeah. share with Yeah, you guys, you guys are tight, right? So yeah, we're fine. <laughs> just, just get in there and really cuddle up. So... The Canucks are going to play the Wild, but first the Wild play in Edmonton tonight. So it's a it's a game against the Wild, which is hard, but it's not a usual game against the Wild in that they're going to be playing the second leg of a back-to-back. How much does that change things based on how the Wild in particular attack and given the impact that the Parise Suter buyouts have had on their depth? Okay, you have to you have to rephrase that question again because I was I was busy fixing this mic. Fair enough. So now now we're in action though. Okay, so Give Wild Wild are playing the second leg of yes. back to back against the Canucks on Saturday night. Yep. Does that ding them in particular because their depth has been eaten into by the by their cap realities? Yes, I mean yeah, they have less depth. Certainly that that'll be more of an issue. Well, it's the first leg of their back to back. Edmonton. Edmonton. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could be a pretty pretty fast-paced back-and-forth high-scoring game, which could drain them quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, th- th- that should be a big advantage for the Canucks. Yeah. I mean, they're so reliant on that Caprizov-Zuccarello combination right now, right? And so I think their game plan won't necessarily change based on that back-to-back. So I don't think it'll affect them too much in that regard. But, yeah, I mean, they're like one injury away from really just having nothing to fall back on. How good are Kaprizov? and Zuccarello together how much fun like where do they rank among your favorite duos 
Are we gonna do? Uh... Well, we might, but let's let's <laughs> stick okay. with because we first. did a draft. We did a draft last Friday. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do another draft okay. because because I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about Zuccarello and Kaprizov. Yes, and then obviously the the Flames lost Kachuk and Gaudreau mm. and haven't quite been themselves. So I think this is a duo based PDO cast. Right. Maybe we'll do a, a a draft the best duos. Jamie Jamie wanted to know like, are we trying to draft the highest scoring? Yeah, duos? I asked Rance before no. the show, and he's like, no, and I'm like, so just vibes. He's like, no, and overall like, value. Well, actually, yes. Just vibes <laughs> well well no not high scoring in the in the, in the sense that we would just sort by points and then you just pick the top sure, ones sure, sure. but in terms of like adding but most, most the table, productive you'd pick starting a team let's sure. say even yeah um yeah they're awesome i mean they play so well off each other it's almost like they share share one hockey brain right. in a sense in terms of like how they know where the other guy's going to be and sometimes they throw these no look passes and it's such a cool story because like for zuccarello to find this kind of chemistry with someone like this late into his career is pretty unprecedented too, right? It's not like this is like two guys who came up together and have been working on their craft doing this for years. Like this kind of like on the fly since last year and they've been awesome, or I guess the past two years. Are the wild, what, what's ailing the wild? Like why are they not as good as we expected them to be? Oh, that's a great question. I've been trying to figure that out all season. I mean, I think we underestimated the loss of Kevin Fiala, right? I thought they'd be able to internally replace that. Marco Rossi would step up, give them most, more scoring. Matt Boldy, would also do the same and they haven't really been able to find that kind of second wave of offense it's pretty much been entirely those two guys up front and it doesn't you know it doesn't help that Jordan Greenway missed a bunch of the season they've been kind of mixing and matching in the bottom six as well so this is what happens when you have like 15 percent of your cap tied up in two guys who aren't on the team they're not your prototypical you know built down the center mm-hmm. playoff or contention yes. team right even the duo we're talking about it's two wingers yeah. it's Caprizov and Zuccarello we're not talking about the guy who plays center with them, how much does that hinder them, right? Like At a certain point, you can justify that philosophy. Okay, we're going to build in other places, but is it a problem for Minnesota at this point? I don't think that's necessarily the, the biggest issue for them, right? Like I think, honestly, anyone you play in between those two guys is going to be fine as long as they basically just get open, hang around, hang around the net, pick up the garbage yep. for them. I really like Joel Eriksson-Eck is one of my favorite players and he's been unheralded for years. Now he's finally been putting up the points and being put in a position to score as well. So I think he's getting more recognition. Freddie Goodrow is a nice little player as well. So I don't think it's that big of an issue, but yeah, I mean like you have their depth chart up right now and, and it's certainly not something you consider like to be your prototypical contender makeup. Yeah. I mean, Sam Steele is the guy getting those reps yeah. right now. He was available to everyone Anyone very, very late yeah. in the summer. Now, there's something to be said for creating an environment where you can plug somebody in Mm -hmm. like that, right? But I do wonder if at a certain point they need a talent upgrade at that position, at the the high level, right? Well, here's what I would say. So Kaprizov is essentially the center on his line. Right. Because he just has the puck all the time. Like, he does all the heavy lifting in that regard. And Kevin Fiala did that for the second line on the wing last year. So they were basically their top two centers. And then they could have that third line with Felino, Greenway, and, and Eriksson Ek, which is a more kind of conventional checking line. And I think that's where we underestimated the impact of losing Fiala because all of a sudden they, really lost they don't have that tra- transport. They basically lost their second line center, even though he never really played that position for them. Interesting. And does that change what they need in terms of... Um, you know, you, you, could Hartman help if they could find just a guy who could help clean up what Zucker like just be effectively like a center version of a press for the Zuccarello line? Or would you need well to replace Fiala more deliberately with a with a center that can drive? I'm not even entirely sure what what's Hartman's status right now because he's not, he's not playing. Yeah, he's yeah. Been out. yeah. I mean, 
he was like the perfect fit. How many school, How many goals did he score for the last year? Almost like 35 or something like that? He scored between a lot. those two guys? In yeah. a monster year. Last yes. Year, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of showed the blueprint, and that's what they're trying to replicate here with Sam's deal. So, yeah. Are the Wilds still a playoff team in your view? Mm-hmm. I think so. Like, like you think so? Or I mean, you... the Central. Like, I think the status the of the Central, Central has bad. really, like, it's really like the seas have parted. Like, yeah, anyone it's... that can put together, like, a solid string of games – I'm going to view as a playoff team in there right now. Right. Because it's, I mean, Dallas, I don't, I don't think I'm buying Winnipeg as like a high end team. Colorado is going to be, have, ha, is going to have to close late and they'll probably do it. Mm-hmm. But like, they're going to have to close late. I, by the way, Colorado's still the favorite to win the division in the Central. <laughs> That's impressive. Did you see the lineup they iced against the Bruins? Yeah, there? it was ghastly. It was like, you know, they couldn't afford to lose Magna on waivers. There was a guy named Callahan Burke. <laughs> playing for them i did not make that name up. i didn't have i don't have a take on that guy yeah. he falls <laughs> yeah, under, we do, we found, he, jamie we found someone like Drance the, doesn't have a take that's on. like the mendoza line for hockey players Drance doesn't have a take on cj seuss like cj seuss <laughs> played the for the sharks the other night and i was like who like i don't have a take the, on this guy the jets i think right? yeah yeah sure yeah. i mean i don't even have that yeah um no the so in the central right now yeah you can get the stars at plus 275 to win the division and that Seems pretty good. I think that's delicious. I also like if you parlay that with the Flames at plus seventy five or plus seven fifty to win the win the Pacific, you get a plus three thousand future, which I uh, just putting it out there. I don't bet on. You hockey, should be doing but... some sort of like a PDO report boost where if you parlay those two teams, oh, you get some sort sad. of extra. That would be, good. That extra, would be cool. Yeah. I, I'm not we'll sure. Talk I'm, to our friends at play now. I'm not sure I'm buying the Calgary part of that leg of that parlay though. And not even just so much about the Flames themselves. We'll move on to the Flames because the Canucks yeah. play them. They have like three days off, but they play the Flames next week as their next opponent. Like, do you really think they're going to track down Vegas? There's a 10-point gap already. I don't see why not. Here's the thing. All of their underlying numbers that look fine, except for the fact that they have like a sub-900 save percentage for yeah. their goalies, which is not an anomaly in today's NHL necessarily. No. But for them, what we'd expect based on their defensive metrics, based on the goalies they have and the Daryl Sutter system, you'd expect better. I just believe Markstrom and Vladar are mm. going to be totally fine. And once they are, this team's going to be like, I think the flames should be valued as the second best team in the West. Like that's just how I think they should be valued. And so if you can get them plus 750 to make a late charge to play at like 120 point pace, which I think is probably close to their true talent anyway, I mean, that, to me, is a no-brainer. Dimitri, from what you're seeing from Calgary, they've I think they're I'm just looking at the standings right now. They're 6-3-1 in yeah. their last 10. Is it actual, tangible improvement to how they're playing, or is it the percentages bending in their favor after a rough start? I mean, yes and no. It's like a little bit of both, right? I'm still expecting. I'm, I'm with Drans, I think, on this one. I don't know if I would value them as the second-best team in the West. I think that might be a bit a bit rich for me, but I wasn't necessarily as high on them heading into, like, I remember I was always, season, I've always were, been really high on the flames. You were valuing them as the best team in the West at some point. For sure. You? Yeah, for sure. I was. Yeah. I, I, and I, I'm, I'm not super different. Like I haven't changed that significantly to be totally honest with you. And from a true talent basis, I mean, the flames still have a move to make, like they need to add a scoring winger in the top six. Just, they just need to add they something have creative, to. right? Yes. Yeah. I think so. I think that's what they're missing. Cause otherwise, yeah, the infrastructure is still there in place. And I think they're, like, their five-on-five five numbers are totally fine. Well, and I think that's why they've been linked to people like Besser, right? Like, I'm sure they're doing their due diligence on a ton of different scoring players. Yeah? Yep. Uh, uh, 100%. 100% <laughs> they are. So, with the, Cal- with the Calgary Flames, though, yeah. outside of goaltending, where have they been most disappointing? Wow, it's got to be Jonathan Huberto, right? Yeah. I think especially considering the shoes he was being asked to fill coming in and stepping in for 
the two thirds of the best first line in hockey last season mm-hmm. and not having him kind of live up to that hype necessarily out of the gate, especially with the contract they gave him following the trade. I, I think that's clearly been the biggest disappointment. Now they're, I think he's going to come on, right? Like he's, he's too talented not to produce at a higher level. Although I think we both would have agreed to temper our expectations heading into the season because last year was a bit of a statistical outlier for him. You know, you mentioned the sub 900 goaltending, and as mm-hmm. you said, not necessarily an anomaly, not just with Calgary, right? Because it's Markstrom with Ladar there, and we have a certain amount of faith in Markstrom, but just kind of league-wide. We just had Dave Nonis on. He said, you know, he thinks the scoring bump, or the scoring binge, I should say, that's happening around the league is going to subside as the year goes on. Where do you come down on that? Is this is this a mirage, like an early-in-the-season mirage still, or is this also kind of the new reality around the NHL? I think it's a new reality. I mean, I think we know that every year sure. scoring starts yeah. at all-time highs and then penalties start being called less frequently. The league kind of settles into place. I think it's pretty clear based on the fact that teams more than ever are icing their most skilled possible lineups, right? Like no teams really at this point are wasting lineup spot or at least regular minutes on players who can't contribute at least a little bit offensively. I think that's a huge part of it. I think like the league just in general is more skilled than ever. So I'm I'm fully expecting like there's no reason to believe that that scoring isn't going to keep going up each and every year unless there's some sort of like a fundamental or, or rule change in place. It's an interesting adjustment that you have to do, not just when you look at a player's scoring, but also yeah. when you look at a goalie, right? And you you see a number and you immediately think, oh, that's awesome or that's terrible. And then you have to go through the adjustment process, right? Yeah. So like, it, it reminds me of looking back at like guys who played in the 80s or something where you see one thing and you have to mentally adjust it for your era. It's like almost 0. 0.10, right? Like point oh, sorry, point oh one zero. Just subtract that from every number in terms of how you are wanting to process it versus how you should. Just like how... Uh, do you remember when the cap first started going up and, and contracts? Like, I remember Blake Wheeler signed for 5.85 times 5 or whatever, and everyone was like, wow, they're playing him like a star. It's like, no, they're paying him like a top six the, forward. The Bo Horvat contract he's finishing. The reaction to that one was like, what? Yeah. Over $5 million for Bo Horvat? And it was a value in like a year. Yeah. Sasha Barkov. People were furious about Sasha Barkov getting less than $6 million. It's like, guy's a stud. Anyway, um... How do you think the Canucks match up with the Flames in the Wild, all told? Are, do they profile as the sorts of teams that you know, can really give this team a tough go five-on-five? Five? I think the Flames do. Mm. I, don't think the, I don't think the Wild necessarily do, right? Like, I think they're going to want to play kind of more, a more loose, open style of hockey and just kind of trading chances back and forth, and I think the Canucks can look perfectly fine in that. And they don't necessarily have... Like, even Kaprizov and Zuccarello, they play fast and, like, they're very precise with their passing, but it's not like one of them just going to take the puck and, you know, burn you out wide with their speed. So I'm, I don't think it's, like, that problematic of a matchup necessarily. Canucks have got back to 500, 8-3-0 over their last 11. How pumped are you about that? Very stoked. Yeah. comes what? in every day, just skipping into work, excited yeah. about it. I'm, I'm, that's actually true, though. I am always very happy to be in, at work. Um I love the idea of you just skipping somewhere, just anywhere, just just skipping around, just so happy. Whistling. Yeah. Like, oh, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> Canucks win again. Hottest Doing finger league. guns and everyone around the office. <laughs> finger guns. Anyway, what what are you seeing from Vancouver? Have they turned anything materially around, or is this dead cat bounce in your view? I know exactly what you want me to say. No, you tell me I what you, I want what you, you to want tell, me to say. I want you to tell me what you think. I mean... No, if you want to stump for the Canucks and say, hey, this is no. a material difference, uh, that's great. I would love to have a clashing opinion on my sh- on this show. I can. I can in good conscience do that. Okay. There's, there's still like a what? There are 
expected goals team. Groslaw situations. Like, come on. Like, they might be lower than that. No, I think they're 47 or so. And their actual goal share is 48%. Like, they're pretty much in line. I think they're 500 team. And that's how they're performing. I think this bit of regression here was anticipated. You look at the teams they're beating. I know that they had those wins against Colorado and Vegas yeah. fairly recently as well. But, I mean, I don't think winning an overtime game against Montreal or San Jose is necessarily something that indicates that there's some fundamental change that we should recalibrate our expectations for them. Like, this is all part of an 82-game season. Yeah, oh, and I think don't we don't we think the Canucks are better than a 500 team true talent? Well, before the season, certainly I would have bet on them to clear. 82 I still, points. I still think I still would. Yeah, I mean they're at 500 at this point, yeah. so they've the they've pa- closed the power that hole play in the Pedersen yeah. line should be good enough that they get to 92, 93 points. Actually, yeah. Let, before we move on to our uh, our duo oh, draft, yes. Elias Pedersen. Yeah, but, like is it's kind of a crime that we're not getting more of a chance i think league-wide to appreciate what he's doing right yeah. now because of the drama and the performance of the oh, team yeah. oh the two-way game i want to i want to include him on my duos list here and just do elias Patterson <laughs> plus fill in plus the blanks yeah <laughs> plus thomas Drans equals one of the best duos in the league yeah i mean he's been so good like on off the puck creating for others and on the one hand i don't think it's necessarily being captured league-wide because of the state of the Canucks at the moment but I think if you're following hockey on a close enough basis even if you're not a Canucks fan like you're noticing what he's doing because he's been just he's been so good it's outrageous he's been really really good it's been uh sometimes Canucks fans or Canucks games have been a slog to watch but Elias Patterson makes it worthwhile pretty much on a nightly basis all right we're gonna do we're gonna draft the best duos and you get first pick because you picked last for our worst team our bad the bad team draft we did the Bedard sweepstakes draft yeah, last yeah. week it was, and like, it was the bad team draft a half hour after the show i was like i don't even i'm trying to remember who i even picked i was like i should have written that well, down one, or something one, one of the listeners mailed in and we didn't mention it at the time but they referred to it as uh drance's tears of tears <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. whoever sent that in drance has mostly got the tears thing out of his system this week oh, has he? It's, a, it's a one week you one didn't week ask wish about it i know i'm la- last week it was like three guests in a row that you okay did we're it. gonna draft the tier uh, duos and then we're gonna tear them <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, so was this, and this is duos based on just like overall talent. Overall talent. Overall talent. You have to win a game tomorrow. Okay, so this isn't easy. And okay, and just to set the ground rules, they don't have to play on the same line. Or no, do they, they do. They, they do have to play on the same line. They have to be people who okay, actually work together. together. Yeah. Okay, like you can't just be like, you know, yeah, yeah, Satin yeah, yeah, Halford. Yeah. You have to pick Halford Ambra. Yes. Mm. Okay. I see. Oh yeah. God. Uh, well, shooting down my rankings. It's an easiest <laughs> one. It's an easy one for me at number one. It's it's McDavid and Dreisaitl. That is the right first that's, pick. That's I mean it's Connor McDavid and then like another top five, top six player. Let's go, Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl. No problem. Am I up? Yep. All right, I got to do some game theory here. I want to. I got to figure out who will fall back to me in round two. Well, I get two because I get two picks. And it's, so it's just present day, right? Yeah. All right, give me Patrice Bergeron. No, that was it's a good one. Who I wanted. It's a good one. Yeah, you snaked me. Um, you are very good at snaking me in snake drafts, by the way. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take Kucherov and Stamkos. Oh wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. what? What? It's Kucherov and Point. Yeah, Kucherov, Kucherov and Point. point. Fine, whatever. Oh, Kucherov and whoever he's playing with. Right no, you now. can have Stamkos. <laughs> Kucherov and Point is, and then I'll take Kaprizov and Zukrill. Okay. Hmm. This is a good one here. I really wanted Bergeron though. The the listeners are shocked that you let. A Leafs duo slide past you. Yeah, your Leafs. Well, the problem is the problem is the Leafs' best duo is right now is Tavares Marner. Yeah, it's true. Although Marner and Matthews have played two hundred thirty-five on five minutes together. No, I know. I think we could fudge it from they play all. I don't think we should. I like right now the Leafs are being carried by the play of a Marner Tavares duo. That's factual. That's what's going on. 
All right, I simply, in good conscience, cannot let McKinnon and Ranton slide any further. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, out of principle, I'm not going to pick the Leafs duo that I was talking about. Uh, I'm going to go with Rupe Hansen, Jason Robertson, man. Oh, wow. Jason Robertson, Hart Trophy candidate. Rupe like Hans, stud two-way player. Tough. I I was Eichel and Stone in strong consideration, but uh, well, I'll go with Hansen Robertson. You have another pick here. No, that was my last pick. Are we, are we going back again? I let's back. Keep, oh, let's all keep, right. Let's keep we'll snaking, do, we'll boys. Do, we'll do one. We'll, let's do. Let's pick nine. Is this like the major league baseball draft where you just Each? go until no? <laughs> no. You I go until know. teams start passing. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, we don't want anyone left. Uh, well, okay, I'll go with Michael and Stone then. Sure, all that's right. a good. That's a good second pick or third pick. Okay. Oh. Oh man, this is tough. There's a lot of good names here left here. Um, you know what? Give me a, give me Crosby and Gensel. Yeah, that's. I like it. Crosby needed to be picked, by the way. No mm. question. I'm stealing your your sheet. There you go. Um, look at that. Look at that. Look at that prep and that homework. I prep more for this show than I do for my show coming up next. Really good. I thought you were gonna say you prep more than we do, which would also be. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta take. There's a lot of good team. There's a lot of good pairs left. Yeah. I think like. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go Hughes and Brad. Oh yes. Yeah, I wanted to take them. Yeah, that's the that's the right third group for me. We had somebody text in that they should have been uh they should have been second off the board. Yeah. Which I think is a little much, but they're really good. I think Bergeron, I think Bergeron and How did you Marchand, not take Thompson and Tuck? I thought, I thought about it. Yeah, take, Thompson I, and Tuck. I thought you would have taken them second round. I thought about it, but like Kaprizov and Zuccarello are you know, they're, they're like um they're the closest thing we've got to the twins right now. They're the smartest guys on the ice when they're on the ice together. It's so much, so much fun to watch. So I just, I just think they're really high end. So we went nine, no Austin Matthews. Well, right now the problem is, is I would contest Matthews being with Marner at the moment. So you'd have to take Matthews and Nylander. Okay. And then you're taking the second best duo on that team at the moment. Like the Leafs are just in this weird moment where Matthews and Marner aren't playing together, and and Tavares and Marner are driving the bus for them because Matthews hasn't quite been at his usual level. Like, I think all of that's completely reasonable. Matthews and Marner though, should obviously go yeah, in the top. I five. didn't take them just for the bit. Yeah. I, I also think it's just complicated. Right it's now. true. You missed a, a brand building opportunity there for you. <laughs> They're just not playing together right now. How this did, how a, did Drance if not... you were sticking, being true to Drance, you would have gone, uh, Kachuk Barkov. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Kachuk Barkov. That would have been the most my two favorite teams. I thought about it, but I, wanted to you know i want branch out a little bit yeah sometimes sometimes to have an effective draft you got to swerve when everyone expects you've you got layers go yeah so i had mcdavid Drysidle, uh robertson hints eichel stone nice i love it that's yeah, it's a good combo that's fantastic yeah, you guys let me get patrice bergeron and Sidney crosby on that's the same tough. team here that's yeah. tough that's good fine. luck that's fine and then who else you got you can't play them on the same line though in this exercise uh, um oh mckinnon ran in yeah it's pretty good you might have won this and yeah. then i got i got Kucherov and whomever. <laughs> Kucherov and Stamp goes. Freedom point, just sadly looking. Kaprizov and uh, Kaprizov yeah. and Zook, and uh, I've got Brat and Hughes. That's an L. That's an L for you. Yeah, you reached on all those guys. You yeah. think so? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, we'll see. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's gonna wrap it up. Dan, what's coming up on the PDO cast, man? Uh, I've got our pal Pete Blackburn on. We're doing a revised top 10 of the uh, most watchable teams this season. Also, nice. Drance, you say we'll see, but we actually won't because there's no objective measurement to this. Yeah. yeah like, no one will be proven right. Are in we going to follow, so follow you, back you, up on this? Yeah, we're going to follow back up. All right, I'm we'll loving these Friday up. drafts. Boys. I know. I'm we're going to follow. We're we're follow we'll at, the, at the end of the year, we'll do like a, a PDO report recap yes. where we go through all the drafts and assign winners, and then we'll take a final score. I like it. 
I like it. You know, so it's like it's like once once Hughes and and Brat are in like the Eastern Conference Final, just destroying, laying waste. You know, you're gonna feel pretty silly about playing uh, picking Rantanen and McKinnon, who aren't even gonna be playing together. Okay, we'll see if that happens. Uh, <laughs> the PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich, our pals coming up next. Have a great weekend, everyone. It's Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650.